Welcome back to the Rooster Crows podcast for March 17th, 2021. My name is Judy Pressman, and today we're talking about paradoxes. Life is full of paradoxes. The more you learn, the less you feel you know. You have to spend money to make money. The more you give, the more you get. I can't live with you or without you. Paradoxes are all around us, but they're often hard to think about. Spiritual traditions abound in paradoxes, from Zen Buddhism's koans to Jesus' statement that we should love our enemies. But entering into the mystery of paradoxes is also a path to spiritual liberation. This week, Reverend Stephen Milton discusses the nature of paradox with lawyer and science geek Joyce Taylor. Along the way, we'll hear a few folk tales about paradoxes. We'll also hear music from the duo William and Polly, who will perform Bob Dylan's Blowing in the Wind. So sit back and get ready for some paradoxes. Today we are here to talk about paradoxes. Um, And I love paradoxes. What do you love about paradoxes? I love the inherent contradiction in them. I love the fact that in order to deal with them, you've got to look at things from multiple angles. Yeah, simultaneously. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And paradoxes can be, you know, a real, real mind benders. And people have different reactions to paradoxes, right? Um, Some people... Uh, really, really hate them <laughs> and just yes. want them to go away. Yes, but part of being a lawyer is being able to look at the gray. And, you know, you, you ask a lawyer a question and they always start, well, it depends. <laughs> right. And, and that's, you know, sort of where paradox comes in because often with a paradox or something that has paradoxes inherent in it, how you deal with it depends yeah, on the particular right. circumstances. Yeah. And the, the reason I've been thinking about paradoxes is just because at the church um, in January, we were looking at uh, past Oscar winning movies and the one which won the Oscar for best picture and a whole bunch of other Oscars 25 years ago was Forrest Gump. And when I was watching Forrest Gump again, preparing for my sermon, I was struck by how many paradoxes are present in the story. You know, Forrest is a guy who grows up poor in Alabama, uh, played by Tom Hanks in the movie. Um, And he's poor, he's diagnosed with an IQ of 75. So the world is a bewildering place to him at all times. And yet he prospers and thrives in a way that just drives the so-called normal people in his life just nuts. They look at him and say, how can a moron like you get a war medal and meet four presidents? You know, that that's impossible. And yet he- And become wildly rich and, you know, end up on the cover of, you know, this Fortune 500 magazine. Yeah, and become a celebrity and, um, you know, and, you know, it's part of the joke of the film that he plays a part in helping John Lennon write the lyrics to the song Imagine. Um, He uh, helps start the jogging craze of the 1970s. 
gives uh, helps give Elvis some of his signature moves uh, <laughs> as he's dancing with braces on his legs. Yeah, <laughs> when he's a child. Yeah, the El- yes. Elvis is a boarder in his house, and Elvis is just transfixed seeing him do this awkward kind of dance because he's got braces on his legs, and that becomes his signature move, that kind of bent knee thing that he did, which drove all the girls wild in the 50s. And so, you know, Forrest is this paradoxical character, the man sort of uh, who you'd think would be least likely to succeed in life, and yet actually has this astonishing life of, you know, wealth and notoriety, even though he's not chasing either one of them. Yes. And it's the simplicity of his thinking and his conduct and the way he accepts, you know, these very simple instructions, run forest, run, Mm -hmm. you know, that, you know, never take your eye off the ball with respect to his ping pong playing. That's right. That focus and, and very simple focus leads to his success. You know, and it's simple, well, I promised Bubba that I was going to, you know, buy a shrimp boat with him. So even though Bubba has been killed in the war, promise is a promise, you know? So this very, you know, straightforward, um, very, fo- you know, appearing seemingly focused, but but very, you know, one singular idea at a time, um, you know, and very simple thinking helps him, you know, achieve this incredible success in a complex world. Yep. Yeah, so it it is fascinating that um, Forrest is, he's just like this this king of paradox, and he doesn't really realize that um, how much of his life is being ruled by these strange paradoxes. He, he just says, you know, life's like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Um, and he just moves along. But the people around him, like Lieutenant Dan and um, his would-be girlfriend, Jenny, they see how paradoxical it is. And they seem to be stuck in paradoxes. And paradoxes they don't have any way they feel of getting out of. For instance, like Jenny grows up in an abusive home. Her father abuses her as a child, and she's determined to run away from home, and she does. And yet, over the course of the movie, every time we see her, she always has a black eye because she's run away from her father into the arms of men who treat her just like her father did. Yes, until she gets her act together and towards the end of the movie and reconnects, reaches out to forest and connects with him yeah and not not surprisingly she embraces a simpler lifestyle with a single focus which is raising her her son who she's had with forest unknown to him and that seems to be the thing which allows her to get off drugs and really focus and, and lead a happy simple life which doesn't end well and that she contracts aids and dies of it but at least she's happy and when i was when i was watching the film and i was seeing all these paradoxes which are definitely like, these aren't sort of accidental to the film. At the very end of the film, Forrest is standing beside Jenny's graveside. And he says, and he's talking to Jenny, um, you know, her spirit, I guess. He's talking to her and he says, you know, some people say that life is all about destiny and you're just supposed to fit into what your destiny says. 
and other people say we're just sort of float through life. I think it's both, maybe a bit of both. You know, so he explicitly has understood that, you know, life is paradoxical. It's destiny and free will at the same time. And when I was watching that, I sort of realized this reminds me of something. And what it reminded me of was um, the West isn't very good at dealing with paradox. No. We tend to choose one thing or the other, right? Um, we do like black and white. Yeah. We like good to triumph over evil. We don't like them coexisting. And we don't like, we, we just, we tend to think in terms of opposites where one is better than the other, right? Um, or that something is only good or only evil. Mm -hmm. It can't be a bit of both. Yeah, and it can't be good at some points and bad at other points, even though it's the same thing. We find that very, yes. very hard to think about. But in Eastern spiritual traditions, uh, this kind of paradox is something which is much closer to the surface. Um, and it reminded me of Taoism, where uh, Lao Tzu and uh, Chung Tzu, I'm sorry if I'm saying that wrong, um, both write about paradox a lot. And there's a lovely little story in um, Chung Tzu's uh, work where he talks about two carpenters who go for a walk by a village one day, and uh, they see a tree, and they talk about it. And here to tell that story for us is our Tai Chi teacher, who's a member of our congregation, Laura Lane, and she teaches Taoist Tai Chi, so she, she seemed like the obvious person to tell us this story. So why don't we listen to her story, and we'll come back and we'll talk about it for a minute. Sounds great. The Useless Tree. There once was an old and crooked oak tree by the village shrine. Every branch was twisted and gnarled. The tree was large enough to shade several thousand oxen and was a hundred spans around. It towered above the hilltops with its lowest branches 80 feet from the ground. More than 10 of its branches were big enough to be made into boats. There were crowds of people around it, a marketplace. One day, a carpenter and his apprentice walked past the tree. The apprentice said to his master, what a useless tree that is. Its trunk and branches are so crooked, so distorted and full of knots. The wood is so beautiful, but it cannot be cut up. No straight plank can be made from it. The tree serves no purpose at all. But the master carpenter replied, The cinnamon tree is edible, so it is cut down. The lacquer tree is profitable they name it. Cherry, apple, pear, orange, lemon trees. As soon as the fruit is ripe, the trees are stripped and abused. Their life is bitter because of their usefulness. That is why they do not live out their natural lives, but are cut off in their prime. They attract the attentions of the common world. This is so for all things. That tree in the village is useless. A boat made from it would sink. A coffin would soon rot. It's worthless timber and is of no use. That is why it has reached such a ripe old age. Every man knows how useful it is to be useful. No one seems to know how useful it is to be useless. So for this big tree, no use. It is planted in the wasteland. 
in emptiness. Yet, people walk idly around it and gather under its shadow. No axe prepares its end. No one will ever cut it down. Useless? If only you could be so useless. So, Joyce, what did you think of the useless I think it's story? fascinating. I, I really enjoy that story. And the fact that the tree may be use, useless from one perspective means that it's extremely useful from another perspective. That it is both useful and useless yeah. at the same time. And that its uselessness makes it useful at the same time, no, that, that the two have to exist together. And it's just a tree, you know, it's not trying to be a complicated <laughs> philosophical concept. <laughs> you know, it's just as trees sitting in a village. And, um, and that's what life is like. Life has paradoxical elements to it, which we may find frustrating, but exists just the same. So the challenge for us is what are we going to do when we bump into paradoxes? Because they really are out there. Oh, absolutely. And and like this, the story of the tree, you often need one side of the paradox for the other side to exist. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And I think, you know, in real life, we are presented by paradoxes all the time. Um, the United States, for instance, is a very wealthy country. It's devoted to everyone being as wealthy as they can. That's the American dream. And yet it's a land of crushing poverty and extraordinary wealth. Like 1% of the population owns something like 50% of all the assets. That shouldn't happen. And yet there it is. And it's persistent and it's real and it keeps happening. And it doesn't look like it's going to go away anytime soon as long as everyone's pursuing wealth. Well, it's not even just that everyone's pursuing wealth. It's that as the land of equality and opportunity, the opportunity is not equally distributed, which leads to this, you know, paradoxical situation. And yet, you know, part of what makes it paradoxical is that everybody agrees that wealth would be a good thing to pursue, right? Like, it's, it's not like that's a highly debatable idea in the United States. Most people think that, you know, material happiness or happiness is tied to material wealth, and yet, even when everybody's pushing in the same direction, it can have this, this result of extreme wealth and extreme poverty, which wasn't the goal, and yet it's there. And the way we try to fix it is by pursuing wealth even stronger, even more, by cutting taxes, giving corporations more incentives. Um, so it's, if you don't understand that you're living in a paradox, you can tighten the noose of the paradox, as it were, by just pushing on one element um, or the, the driving force. Um, the, yes. the healthcare crisis also seems to be, like our COVID healthcare crisis also seems to be an example of a paradox. Yes, it is and it isn't. I mean, I think there are those who try and set up the dichotomy of you have to save everybody health-wise or you have to save the economy by allowing people to uh, keep their business, small businesses open, 
and not restrict what uh, the majority of the population can do. Um, I think there's a good argument as well that if you don't have a healthy population, you can't have a healthy economy as well. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, looking at the example of Sweden, for instance, who at first said, let's just let this thing run its course in the interest of keeping their economy open. Um, I, from what I've read, statistical studies have found that they actually did worse on both fronts. Um, and ironically, if you shut absolutely everything down in a very, very determined way, you can actually prevent a lot of economic problems because you won't have to go through this roller coaster ride of lockdown, opening up, lockdown, opening up, because it's the transition points that cost the most money. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we've been faced with this paradox, and yet, you know, to, to date, most countries haven't been able to figure their way out of it because we can't decide what we really want. Or we, we right? can't decide the measures that will allow us to potentially have what we want. I mean, it's a bit of, you know, are we willing to deal with the short-term consequences or are we going to try and just shove them off into the future? And this virus seems to relish the short-term, our, our desire for short-term gratification, it seems to thrive on that. And our inability to say, okay, we have to suck it up and deal with everything now. We can't put it off to the future. And in order to essentially cut off and, and disrupt how this virus works. That, that struggle that we have reminded me of another folktale. Um, this one's not a religious one. It's actually from the Brothers Grimm, um, and it's called The Fisherman's Wife. And uh, the person who's going to read it right now is a member of our con congregation, Panache. And um, it's, it's a charming story, uh, which uh, we made a video of this, and we found some lovely African visuals that go along with it, even though it's a Brothers Grimm story. So that's why there's African music underneath this. So let's take a listen, and uh, then we can come back and talk some more. The Fisherman and His Wife Once upon a time, there was a fisherman who lived with his wife in a run-down, filthy shack. They were very poor, but he did not mind. One day, he went down to the sea to fish. He caught a large flounder. Much to the fisherman's surprise, the fish begged him to let him go. He explained he was, in fact, a prince who had been enchanted to become a fish. So the man threw the magical creature back into the sea. When the fisherman got home, he told his wife what had happened. Did you ask the fish to grant you a wish? She asked. The fisherman said, no. What would he ask for anyway? The wife told him to go back tomorrow and if he caught the fish, to wish for a better house. The next day, the husband went fishing and once again, he caught the enchanted fish. He asked for his wife's wish for a bigger house. The fish replied, your wish has been granted. 
When the fisherman got home, he found his wife standing in front of a lovely house and a garden for fruit and vegetables. She was delighted, but not for long. After two weeks, she asked her husband to go back to the sea and to ask the fish for a palace. This house is too small. So the fisherman reluctantly trudged back to the shore where he caught the fish and told it what his wife wanted. Go home, she already has it, said the fish. And sure enough, when he got home, his wife was standing in a stone palace with servants waiting on her. But the fisherman's wife was still not satisfied. The next morning, she looked out the window at the rolling hills beyond her estate. I would like to be king of all that land. That is what I need. So the fisherman went back to the sea and sheepishly asked for his wife to be the king. And the wish was granted. But a few weeks later, he was back telling the fish that his wife wanted to be the emperor of all the land. And then a few weeks later, she wanted to be the pope. But when the fish granted that wish, the fisherman noticed the sea was whipped up with tall, menacing waves. And then one night, she declared that she still wasn't happy. What she wanted now was the power of God. But her husband refused to go back to the sea. His wife flew into a rage, kicking him and screaming at him. So, with a heavy heart, he went back to the sea. This time, the sea was churning. The sky was black. Winds were blowing houses and trees over. The fisherman caught the fish and related his wife's wish to have the power of God. Go home, the fish said. She is sitting in her filthy shack again. And they are sitting there even today. Okay, and we're back. I love that story because uh, the fisherman's wife thinks she knows exactly what she wants. But the more she goes after what she wants, the less she gets what she wanted. It's, it's like she's strangling herself in a weird way. Um, it's a truly paradoxical situation. That story actually reminds me of another folktale. I think this one may be from South America, but I'm not entirely sure. And this tale is about a wealthy man who goes on vacation and encounters another fisherman who uh, every day he goes out, he catches just enough fish to be able to survive. And then he, you know, so goes out early in the morning, does his fishing, comes back, sells his fish, buys what he needs for the day, then, you know, goes home, has a nap with his wife, you know, and, and enjoys his life. But the wealthy man says, 
what are you doing? Why don't you, you know, fish more? Why don't you try and accumulate something for the for the future and and work harder now? And then in the, buy a bigger boat. Exactly. Buy right? a bigger boat, have a crew, you know, you know, harvest more fish, make more money. And then he says the fisherman says, "Why would I work so hard?" And he says, "Well, then because then you'll have enough wealth and then you'll be able to retire." And the fisherman says, and what would I do if I retire? And the wealthy man says, well, you'd maybe fish a bit in the morning and then, you know, come back and sell your fish. And then you could have a nap in the afternoon with your wife and relax for the rest of the day. And the fisherman says, but I'm doing that now. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Live it now. Exactly. Live it now. Yeah. Exactly. And, 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 you know, the paradox, you know, obviously is why, why work three times as hard and wear yourself out to just stay in the same place? Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's sort of the, the, the fun thing about the fisherman and his wife's story is that, you know, she keeps asking for more and more and more. She wants to be emperor and then pope. And then finally she asks to have the power of God, right? And the fisherman doesn't want to ask the fish for this because it's obviously such an audacious sacrilegious question but he goes down to the shore and he, he asks and the fish says go back she's she's back in her shack and when we hear that we think oh okay so she asked for too much she's being punished so she's back in her shack but I think that the other reading that you can have of that is that she got exactly what she wished for because the power of God is to be satisfied with the wonderful beauty of everything as it is. And also to live the simple yeah. life. Yeah. I mean, you know, Jesus didn't walk around saying, you know, how soon before we get to the palace, I really need to have a bath. You know, like <laughs> Jesus was happy to just walk among the common people up and down those, you know, dusty Galilean roads. Uh, he seemed to have zero interest in luxury. Um, so... I think that that story has this lovely kind of paradoxical ending because you can read it in two ways and both of them are entirely consistent with the story. But, you know, one of them is actually maybe she got exactly what she wanted. Maybe she actually managed to break out of the paradox by asking for the power of God because God's not flummoxed by paradoxes. Yes. Well, right? I mean, God arguably set up the world to have paradoxes. Indeed. Yeah, exactly. And then when, you know, in the Christian tradition, when God decided to come down and make the world's ultimate house call, uh, God came in the form of a paradox, right? Uh, a person who was both man and God at the same time and has been confusing people ever since because of that. Um, and, you know, who said, I'm going to save the world by letting it destroy me. What? That doesn't make any sense, right? You know, yes. victory through weakness, you know, if you want to save your life, you have to be willing to lose it. You know, all these paradoxical things which Jesus said. And which were subsequently repeated by his disciples, in particular Paul. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and they found obviously deep, deep meaning in those paradoxes. Those paradoxes were like a, a doorway um, to a higher level of being, um, higher level of consciousness, if you will. Um, and, and it's funny because in the West, Christianity didn't really go that way. <laughs> you know, in the early days, they were very good at keeping those paradoxes alive. Um, but 
you know, after Augustine and the collapse of the Roman Empire, Catholicism in particular, and then later Protestantism, doubled down on one side or the other. You know, it's good or it's evil. Um, and in the, uh, you know, we we sort of lost the paradoxical Jesus, and we tended to grab hold of just the moralistic Jesus, which is you know the moral the moral Messiah who just tells you what to do, and you just you follow the orders, and then you'll get into heaven. And there's nothing paradoxical about that. That's just sort of a very linear way of seeing things. Um, and in the 20th century, scholars said, you know, let's let's try and figure out who this Jesus guy really was. So they pursued studies of, you know, trying to figure out the historical Jesus. So it was like they took God and man together in the same paradoxical figure, and they just chose the man part, um, and which hasn't been terribly successful in terms of rejuvenating Christianity, no. obviously, um, since, you know, we continue to have troubles. But it's funny because in the West, while we've, we've pursued this linear perspective, always approaching a paradox and choosing one side to double down on and emphasize versus the other. It was interesting in the, in the early 20th century when scientists, the most linear thinkers of all, decided to finally figure out what matter was made out of, they bumped into a paradox. Absolutely. I mean, you know, Newtonian physicists were very, very linear in their thinking. Gravity is a force that, you know, apples in the tree and it drops and you can calculate the rate at which the item, you know, uh, drops, you know, the extent to which its speed accelerates over the height that the item is dropping and the coefficient of resistance, how much the air pushes against the item as it drops from, you know, the first story building or a, you know, 20 story building. Um, and then as they tried to look deeper and deeper and get smaller and smaller, that's when they started running, bumping into the paradoxes. And, and mm -hmm. yeah, because Adams just did not want to behave. In a well, no, way, and they? I mean that's when you start getting into um, subatomic particle physics, it is absolutely full of paradoxes. Um, I mean, starting with you know Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, which is that essentially mm -hmm. the act of observing something changes the thing that you're observing. And I think that's most understandable yeah. when you start to think of electrons. Because, you know, electrons are the little negative particles that go around the nucleus of an atom. And essentially, with their electrical forces, make up the shell of an atom. And the only way you can look at an electron, so to speak, is with an electron microscope. Now, what is an electron microscope? Well, it's essentially a machine that fires one electron at another to try and figure out either where it is or where it was going before, or actually I should say where it was or where it was going, like what direction and what speed before the 
electron in the electron microscope was fired at the electron that's being observed. Right. So it's like if you were to try and measure bullets by shooting bullets at bullets, you would hit the bullet, but you would change where the bullet is by hitting the bullet, so you wouldn't actually know where the bullet is, right? But you could probably figure out where the bullet was just before you hit it with your the bullet you're, that you're using to observe it. Or you could figure out where the bullet is going after you hit the bullet, but you can't figure out both. Yeah, and that's the choose. frustrating thing. It's it's like yes. saying it's like saying call your you call a friend and you say, "Okay, I know you're coming to my house. Where are you right now?" And the friend says, "Well, I can tell you either what direction I'm going in or where I am right now, but I refuse to tell you both things." Yeah. Which of course makes no sense because normally we would say, "I'm on the 401. I'm at Steels and something or other, and I'll be there in 15 minutes." So I know where I'm going. I know where I'm at. I know my direction. I know all those things, but at the subatomic level, it doesn't work that way. You get, you can have one thing, but not the other, and and that really, really confused them because they had this, they had this planetary model of the atom at that point, right? And this just did not fit into that at all. And no, it, and it's like saying the moon could be full tonight, or it could be on the other side of the Earth. We're just not exactly sure, but there's a pretty good chance it's going to be full tonight. But there's also a chance that it's not going to be in the sky at all for the Western or the Northern Hemisphere. And I think where this really first started to crystallize for a lot of scientists was when they were trying to figure out whether light is a particle or it's a wave. Mm -hmm. So light is made up of photons which again are subatomic particles. And they're essentially little bits of energy that are fired off by the sun. And if you look at light one way, it behaves as if it's a wave, you know, like a sound wave. Mm -hmm. But if you look at light using another means, it will look like a particle it will behave more like an electron or a proton um, and look like it's a distinct bit of something. And how it behaves depends only on how you, what means you're using to look at it. Yeah, so the way you measure it actually influences the sort of result that you get, right? It influences the behavior of the photons. And so light is, you know, for subatomic particle physics, physicists, they have to embrace the paradox that light is both a wave and a particle at the same time. Right, which makes no sense at all in terms of macro uh, physics, but it makes, but it's the physics on which everything is based, right? Like every single atom has these bizarre paradoxes in it. And since everything's made of atoms, ergo, the world is full of paradox like even at the physical level. And I think that's the thing which people don't really understand when they when they say, oh, paradoxes make my head hurt. I don't want to think about them. It's like, well, you are a guest at the table of paradox, whether you want to be or not. This whole life is full of paradoxes, starting at the most basic physical level, the way matter is created. And it's, I, I think that when people expect say religion to be straightforward or life to be straightforward they're cheating themselves of the wealth and richness of real life and 
paradoxes, uh, certainly like in folk tales, like the ones that we've heard today, are basically invitations to broaden your mind, to have a perspective which allows opposites to coexist so that you can see life more richly than you did before. Yes, and it's because there are aspects of religion which you have to take on faith, but then there are aspects of religion that you can just know. So the fact that, or are certainly in my view, to be able to experience the fullness of religion, you have to embrace the fact that you can't know. Yeah, and it, obviously it depends on how you define knowing, and there's, there's a couple of different ways of defining knowing, right? Like in the West, we typically yeah. think of knowing as uh, something which you can grasp with your mind and sort of have in your possession, right? Like, so um, how'd you do on the history test? Oh, I know all those dates as though somehow those dates of historical events are yours and you have them under a glass jar within your brain and, and they're, they're right there. Or the botanist can tell you all that he or she knows about butterflies because they have a butterfly collection which they've been studying and they pin butterflies to the wall. That's one type of knowing. But that kind of knowing is a kind of knowing which separates things out of their original context so that they can be grasped and understood. The butterfly pinned to the wall is not really a butterfly because real butterflies fly and they interact with the air as they fly. They can't be separated from the air that they're in and still really be a butterfly. And yet that's how we know butterflies. And in the Jewish tradition, the, in Hebrew, the words that they use for knowing survives in the, the sort of the expression that we have, she knew him in a biblical way. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that kind of knowing is not about she separated him from his entire environment and could see him dispassionately, but rather she knew him. She physically experienced his identity enwrapped in hers. In a very intimate way. In a very intimate way, but it's an experience of being joined with something rather than separating something out. Yes. So you're not separating the observation from the experience. Right. Exactly. You're participating in the thing which you wish to know about because you are in the know, as it were, because you're experiencing it. Right. So if you're in love with someone, you know that person, but in an entwined way. Right. Like you are intertwined in that knowledge. It's not a bunch, you know, you can have you can have knowledge about I know when they were born and so forth. But that's not really knowing. That's just a bunch of data. Um, real knowing is when you're in a, in a relationship, in experience with with that thing that which, you know. Um, and so if someone says that they know something, it's important to understand in what way they're expressing that, because they may say, I know something because I've separated it from its context and I wish to have control over it. That's what my knowledge is for. And that's a very Western, very Western. way of, of using the word know. Yeah, very Western and very, it's powerful, you know, like we can know things about the atom supposedly and allow ourselves to make computer screens and atomic bombs and so forth. But that's very different from being intertwined with the atom or being intertwined with the climate. Like, to, I think this is one of the reasons that indigenous people find us, at least, white, at least white Westerners, so frustrating. Because they say 
they know the land in the sense that they have a relationship with the land. So it's not about, you know, how much mercury is in the water. It's about, I want to save the water from being poisoned by mercury because I have a relationship with the water. The water has a relationship with me and we owe each other because we're in relationship. Whereas Westerners would say, well, that, there's not that much mercury in that river. It's fine. Yeah. Or we'll use something else to gain dominance over the mercury in the water and, you know, solve the problem that way. Yeah, that's right. Um, as opposed to seeing the land as something that is necessary to our identity and our culture and our way of life. Yeah, I mean, from an indigenous perspective, they would say, you can't know me without knowing all my relations. And all my relations are the animals and the plants and the whole land that I come from. You cannot abstract me out of my, out of my context and claim to know me. Yes. That's just absurd from their perspective. Whereas our perspective, we talk all the time about individuals and the word individual means something which cannot be divided, right? Um, it, but it, it's something which is indivisible in itself, but it's separated out from everything else because we can look at it in isolation from everything else. So th this is where our Western society could really use a lot, more, um, a lot more exposure to and appreciation of paradox because paradox insists on a relationship between two things which seem like they shouldn't go together, but they do. And we tend to choose to, we tend to choose one aspect of that paradox over the other, severing that relationship. But that kind of knowledge, although it pretends to be a good way of give, giving us control, also seems to be related to the fact that life is now getting out of control and our approach to it has something to do with And that. I think a lot of the, the problems that we're encountering on a societal level, such as climate change and some of the social problems that we're having, you know, systemic bias and, and other similar issues are related to our desire to look at something and solve it, you know, as something, as a question by itself and the desire for a simple solution. Yeah, and, uh, and a solution that we can manage, that yes. you know, we're, we're in a position to be managers, so we're not actually saying, I want to lose power in this situation, or I want to cede power to someone else, or I want to share power, but rather, I want to keep the power, and the expression of that is, I'm going to fix this problem. And I think that you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and the Indigenous movement have said, you know, really, we don't need white society to solve this problem because we think you guys are a big part of the problem. Instead, we need you to start listening to other people who have been on the receiving end of this so that we can come up with a solution which works for everybody rather than you guys just taking it as another thing on your managerial list to solve. Yes. And that by listening to Indigenous peoples and persons of color, you know, we're not necessarily... Uh, losers as a you know it's not a win-lose proposition um it's gray right mm -hmm. you know it's not black or white or maybe it's purple yeah you know maybe it's a wonderful glorious color that you know we're aiming for here you know which isn't black or white but is something that's wonderful um once we get over this sort of us and them perspective yes 
and that we can in fact do much better collectively by embracing mm-hmm. you know the those who are different from us than by you know putting up these walls it's kind of like the the fascinating discussion that uh, is in the globe and mail these days about uh, the treatment of women and you know uh, people of color in the workplace and one of the things that uh, i think there's been talk about uh, embracing others in leadership other than you know straight white men and the companies that have already done this who have already embraced having others at you know the in the seats of power within you know corporate structures have actually done incredibly well and have outperformed people who or corporations that have people sitting at you know the managerial table who all think the same and the paradox of diversity increasing prosperity and not leading to you know conflict but in fact leading you know providing synergies uh, is something that we still have yet to thoroughly embrace yeah and yet clearly you know I, I've heard of these studies too there's evidence that um, diversity leads to uh, a greater range of uh, perspectives being considered at the table and as a result better problem-solving uh, abilities right by by an organization which is very different from the mm, I don't know if we do affirmative action then we're just gonna be hiring people who are underqualified right and that's that was you know always the concern whereas nope actually they will increase the qualifications of your organization because you will be able to think outside of the box you've been locked in um it's a it's a delicious paradox and uh shows yet another example of why we need to be open to paradox rather than trying to close ourselves off from it because we're only cheating ourselves and others yes couldn't agree more and so why don't we finish it there Thank you, Joyce. That was a lovely discussion. Absolutely. I always enjoy our discussion, Stephen. And we will be back in weeks to come. So uh, thanks for listening and uh, enjoy the paradoxes in your life. They are there to enrich you.
how many times can a man turn his head and pretend that he just doesn't see? How many times must a man look up before he can see the sky? And how many years must one man have before he can hear people cry? And how many deaths will it take till he knows? That was Bob Dylan's Blowing in the Wind, performed by William and Polly. That's it for today's podcast. The Rooster Crows is produced by Lawrence Park Community Church in Toronto, Canada. We're a progressive Christian church, and we stream our services live every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Please check us out at www.lawrenceparkchurch.ca. My name is Judy Pressman, and I'm the program manager at the church. Our theme music is Simple Gifts, performed by our musical director, Mark Toes. Thanks for listening. Please stay healthy and safe. Mm -hmm.